It's good to be back up front preaching. It's, it's been a couple of weeks, um, so it's, it's wonderful. I feel, I was feeling real antsy this week, um, so pray that the Lord would, would have something antsy-like excited uh, to, to, to teach this morning. We're going to be in a really fascinating chapter of the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 4. And Daniel chapter 4 is the only chapter of the Bible written by a pagan. So from the beginning to the end of the chapter, this chapter was written by Nebuchadnezzar. Everybody remember who Nebuchadnezzar is? Why don't you, it's a fun name to say, so say it to your neighbor. Say Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. Rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Daniel chapter 4, um, this whole series has, has been framed by the famous verse in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. We can see this play out over and over again in the story of Daniel. Think about chapter 1. Daniel and the boys are confronted with this situation where they're being asked to eat food that would make them unclean. Now, the problem with eating the food that would make them unclean is that if they are unclean, what can't they do? Worship. So it's about worship. They can't worship because then they'll be unclean, and they're stuck in this situation that seems like it's impossible. But Daniel, Rakshak, and Benny put their trust in God, and he makes their paths straight. Isn't that amazing? All right, chapter 2, what happens? Nebuchadnezzar has a bizarre, crazy dream. The statue with the head of the gold and silver and bronze and iron. You remember that dream? We talked about it a couple weeks ago. And then Nebuchadnezzar calls all the wise men in, all the enchanters, all the magicians, and he says, I want you to interpret my dream. And they're like, all right, we're ready. Tell it to us. He says, no, you actually have to tell me what I dreamed. Think about what that would have been like. Tell me what I dreamed, or else you're dead. So none of them can do it, obviously. And Nebuchadnezzar is about to put them all to death. And Daniel's like, wait, let me pray. So he prays, and then the Lord reveals to Daniel the dream. And not only does he reveal the dream, he reveals the interpretation. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and God will make your straight path. Another situation that, it, by, by every fleshly measure, is impossible to know how to move forward. And Daniel gives his heart and trust to the Lord, and the Lord provides a way forward. Chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar builds his statue. And it was, I think Josh said, it was eight stories high. Think about that. You're, you're standing in the city and look up at tall buildings, eight stories high, this statue. And all the people of the kingdom of Babylon were, um, were commanded that when you hear the symphony play, you must bow down and worship. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we don't know where Daniel was. Perhaps he was out on the king's business somewhere else. But in this story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or as VeggieTales say, Rakshak and Benny, which I prefer, were, were, were stuck in this place of, are we going to worship or are we going to worship God? And, and, you know, they make the choice to, to worship uh, the one true God. And it seems like, again, an impossible situation. But they are, they're like, we put our case before God. He, if we die, 
we're still standing with him, but he's able to save us. And Nebuchadnezzar is so furious, he heats up the, the fire eight times the normal, the normal heat, and he has them thrown in, and instead of three, there's four walking around, and then they come out, and Nebuchadnezzar ends up worshiping God rather than his statue. Trust, they trust in the Lord with all their heart. They lean not on their own understanding. They acknowledge God in all their ways, and God makes their path straight. We see this play out over and over again in the book of Daniel. I said this uh, in week one, just as an introduction, but it's really easy to hear and see the story of Daniel at that sort of like flannel graph, like early childhood level. So like if we think of Daniel, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of Daniel? Lions, Daniel in the lion's den. And it's probably a picture where he's like leaning on them and like they're chilling together, right? Having having fun. The, The problem with that image is that it doesn't, it doesn't capture the actual humanity and the terror that Daniel would have felt and experienced in that situation. Because those weren't flannel, gra- uh, flannel graph lions when he was being thrown in there. And he had no idea what the outcome was going to be. He, he quite likely thought, this is, this is it. This is the end. As he's being pushed in, this is a real man who lived in deeply fearful, painful, awkward, difficult, impossible situations. And so the more that we can bring that, that humanity, that, that real experience and put ourselves in, in his shoes and, and feel what it would have felt like to be in that position, I think the, the more that, that God's word comes alive to us and we can experience it like we're meant to experience it. So as I'm reading chapter four and we're encountering this story in chapter four today, what I want to challenge you is to sort of move past that, that flannel graph, that, that early, and nothing, nothing's wrong with teaching our kids in that way. I don't mean, I don't mean to say that. That's a wonderful thing. Teach your children the Bible and, and, and stories and, and wonder, but, but as mature believers, don't be content with the milk. But go after the meat. So put yourself in, in this situation and experience the depth and, and all that's in it. A few more points before we jump in. Isn't that an awesome picture, by the way? Yeah, Gretchen, Gretchen drew that for us for this series. So great job, Gretchen. That was awesome. Yeah, really cool. All right, Daniel, his name means God is my judge. Everybody say Daniel. God is my judge. Raise your hand if you want to be judged by God. That's a problem. That's a problem. You should desire God's judgment in your life. You know, I think I've said this before, and I'll probably do more teaching on it down the road, but what judgment means, the Hebrew and the Greek word, all that it means is to separate. And so when God judges, he separates light from dark, sin from righteousness. So unless God judges you, you cannot be separated from your sin. What we desire, however, deeply is to not be condemned. Because what happens is the judgment, when it separates the light from the darkness, the light is exalted in the glory of God and the darkness is condemned unto death. And so if you avoid God's judgment, you're avoiding his salvation and work in your life. Daniel has a beautiful name. God is my judge. We should long for the judgment of God in our lives. Every day we should wake up and say, God, separate in me what's wrong and what's right. Holy Spirit, point out to me when I say something I shouldn't say. Convict me when, 
when I sin against my brother or sister. That's God's judgment that leads them to life. Daniel's name means God is my judge, and we see that in this story over and over again where Daniel welcomes God to be the judge rather than anyone else. Nebuchadnezzar's name, that name means may Nebo protect the crown, and Nebo was one of the main Babylonian gods, and so his name has significance too. They took, uh, one of the greatest gods of the Babylonian pantheon, uh, his name means the king is protected by him. Now there's an interesting parallelism that happens in the six narrative chapters of Daniel. In Daniel 1, Daniel and the boys humble themselves and God exalts them. So they choose to humble themselves before God and then God lifts them up. What we're going to see in chapter 4 is that Nebuchadnezzar lifts himself up and what does God do? Brings him low, humbles him. What does pride come before? The fall. So when we lift ourselves up, it leads always to our humiliation. When we humble ourselves before God, it leads to him lifting us up. Peter talks about this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and at the proper time, he will lift you up. In chapter 2, we saw that Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which everyone was unable to interpret. And in chapter 5, we'll see that Daniel interprets the writing on the wall, that, that crazy hand that appears on the wall. In chapter 3, we see Rashak and Benny refuse to worship the idol, and they're thrown into the fire, but God saves them. And in Daniel chapter 6, we see that Daniel refuses to worship the king, and is thrown into the lion's den, but God saves them. So in these six, six chapters, we see parallels happening in the different stories. So keep in mind chapter 1 while we're reading chapter 4. Does that make sense? All right, one more piece of scripture to look at because it is so applicable to this passage of the Bible. Psalm chapter 2. This is a glorious psalm about the strength and the majesty of the kingship of Jesus. Psalm chapter 2. Keep this in mind while we're reading Daniel chapter 4. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, the kings of the earth, Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So in this psalm, we see the earthly kings glorifying themselves, lifting themselves up in their own power and strength, and we see God laughing because the mightiest man on earth with all his power and all his wealth and all his armies is like an ant to our God. Nothing. Here today, gone tomorrow. He holds all the power. He is completely and totally sovereign over it all. 
and he will set his own king who will reign forever, his son. All right, so let's look at this story in Daniel chapter 4. We're going to go through the whole passage. It's a little bit long, but who cares? This is the word of God, so we'll let it, we'll let it speak to us this morning. Good stuff. Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is writing a letter. There's no introduction. We have, to, we have to pick this up as we read. So this is a letter that Nebuchadnezzar is writing to his people where he's recounting the story of what happened to him over the previous years. When Nebuchadnezzar writes this, it's probably towards the end of his reign. He reigned for 43 years, which is a long time. Can you imagine having one president for 43 years? It's a long reign. 43 years uh, of Nebuchadnezzar ruling, and Daniel um, is probably about 50 years old, so he's getting a little bit older, and there's probably a 30-year gap between the story of the statue and this letter. So time has passed. Nebuchadnezzar is at the zenith, the height of his power. Do you remember what Nebuchadnezzar built that became one of the ancient seven wonders of the world? Do you know this? The, the gardens? That, yeah, the, the Babylonian hanging gardens. So Nebuchadnezzar, according to legend, married this uh, princess who, um, from the Medes, I think she was, and in her homeland, she was used to rolling hills, rolling green hills. And when she came to Babylon, there were obviously no rolling green hills. And so she complained to Nebuchadnezzar. And so what he did was he literally built her a mountain and then made it green um, so that she could feel like home. And that's, that was the origin of, of the Hanging Gardens. If, if you've never seen them before, um, you can Wikipedia the, the Hanging Gardens and see some, some cool pictures of what it might have looked like. And it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So Nebuchadnezzar, when, when this story takes place, he is at the height of his power. And he's probably looking over his kingdom and seeing all the incredible things that he's done in his own strength. And maybe perhaps even looking at this mountain he constructed in the middle of the city. And seeing these gorgeous, lush, amazing, beautiful gardens. And thinking to himself, no one else on earth could have done this. Only me. Chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. He's got some reach. If you can write that kind of, who's written an email to all the people's tongues, tribes, and nations across the earth? Anybody written that email before? Nebuchadnezzar has some reach. He has conquered everyone that he has encountered. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the people's nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. All right, now listen to this phrase. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. When Nebuchadnezzar had the dream of the statue, what did he learn in that dream? Was his kingdom an everlasting kingdom? No. You're the, you're the head of gold, and after you is going to come another kingdom, and after them is going to come another kingdom, and after them is going to come another kingdom. And so Nebuchadnezzar has had this di- revelation directly from God, your kingdom is going to end, but listen to how he talks about God's kingdom. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation 
to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid as I laid in bed. This is an interesting phrase. The fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Here we go again. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they would not make known to me its interpretation. So he tells them the dream this time. He doesn't make them come up with it. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, Because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. All right, before we get into verse 10, where Nebuchadnezzar talks about his dream, I want you to, I want to draw your focus and attention to this phrase that Nebuchadnezzar calls Daniel. What does he title him? What does he say he is? The chief of the magicians. This is interesting. Daniel was the chief of the people of these pagan, pagan magicians who would have practiced all the basic witchcraft and paganism, pantheism uh, of, their, of their day. Daniel is the chief. Now, do you remember how old I said Daniel probably was? 50. And how much time had passed since the last story? How long? 30 years. So... Is this a new position for Daniel, or has he been doing this for a bit? He's been doing this for a bit. Think about the implications of that. Daniel, kidnapped as a child from his homeland, after having watched it it be destroyed and raised to the ground, the very temple of the God he worships has been destroyed by this man, Nebuchadnezzar, and leveled to the ground, and then was brought into exile out of his homeland and forced to spend his entire life in this unclean pagan culture surrounded by false worship and idols. And Daniel is now the chief, and has been for a long time, the chief of the magicians. Can you imagine the amount of compromise that man faced day to day? Every single day. Somehow, Daniel has remained faithful to God while walking it out. We're going to see this a little bit more, but the reason why I want to highlight this is because one of the most common things I hear people talk about in our culture, especially Christians talk about, is our culture is going to hell in a handbasket. And it's not what it was 50 years ago. And I wasn't around 50 years ago, but I believe that it has changed, and I believe that, that, that it is different. But we are without excuse. If Daniel, who lived hundreds of years before Christ and before Pentecost, before the Spirit of God indwelled the people of God, before Jesus lived out the perfect example of life, before he died and was resurrected and the resurrected power of God lived within his people, if Daniel, who lived 450 years before that, could walk faithfully with God in the midst of a fallen culture, how much more so 
should we? We are without excuse. No matter how difficult the culture becomes, no matter how crazy things seem like they are, no matter how difficult it is at work, I promise you it's not more difficult than Daniel had. And I also promise you this, that you have more power than he had because you live after Christ. And if you live after the time of Christ and you worship Christ, then you've been filled with the Spirit of God and you look back on the perfect example, not forward to something that you don't understand fully. When Daniel looked at the promises of God, it was the future and he didn't know what it would look like. When we look at the promises of God, we open the Bible and we see Jesus. And we know how to live because he lived before us and gave us the perfect example. This should convict you. It convicts me. We are without excuse. If Daniel can walk faithfully with God, trusting in him with all his heart, God made his path straight. How much more so us who are called sons of God. Daniel did not pray, Abba, Father. He was not taught to pray, Abba, Father. Jews did not pray to God like that back then. We pray, Abba, Father, because Jesus has taught us how to know God as dad, as father in that intimate way. So, so, This should challenge us. It should convict us. It should also encourage us. It should encourage us because the same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you. So live like it. Walk like it. Bear the fruit of it. I I can't wait to meet Daniel and talk to him. He is like my, of all the heroes in the Old Testament, I want to be like Daniel. Like, the, the way that he walks with God and gives him his heart over and over. All right, verse 9. O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. Verse 10. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in my bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the, beasts of the, let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. So in this dream, Nebuchadnezzar is, sees this incredible tree that reaches out to the heavens. It's a picture of his kingdom and of his earthly might. And all the different peoples of the earth find shelter under it and find food under it and find prosperity and flourishing under it. And then this angelic messenger comes and says, let it be cut down. And so the tree is cut down at the base and as it falls down, its branches are, are cut off. And so now it's just the, the trunk of the tree and the branches have been cut off. And now the leaves are stripped off and scattered across the earth and the fruit is, is pulled off. The thing is completely and utterly decimated and demolished. All that's left is this stump. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze 
Amid the tender grass of the field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Why is this going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar? Why? Tells us right here. Why? So that the living, us, might know that the most high rules the kingdom and he gives it to whomever he will. And it's not the greatness of men that causes them to be leaders or rulers over nations. It's God. It's his authority. And he gives it to whom he will, when he will, and he takes it away when he will. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed, for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. Remember, Daniel, as a small child, was kidnapped from his home by this man. This man destroyed his city and the temple of his God and brought him into exile where he was forced to live essentially as a prisoner his entire life. In the flesh, how do we feel when our enemies, our, our doom is proclaimed over our enemies. Feel good, right? You had it coming to you. You got what you deserve, big guy. Notice Daniel's response. He was dismayed. And he was alarmed. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. But Belshazzar answered and said, listen to his response, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The temptation of the earth is always to overcome power with power, with greater power. So if someone slaps you, you slap them harder. If someone takes something from you, you take more from them. Overcoming power with power. This is the way of the world. In the kingdom, this is not the way. What does Jesus say when you're slapped on the cheek? What does Jesus say when someone forces you to carry a load for a mile? You carry it two miles. In the early church, this should also convict us. It certainly convicts me. In the early church, and uh, I, I heard this from a guy named Preston Sprinkle, who's a, a theologian, New Testament theologian. The, the number one most quoted verse in early church history, so like the first couple hundred years, the John 3.16 of its day, that every Christian knew by heart and said to one another. And it shows up more than any other verse in all the patristic ancient writings of the church. Do you know what it is? Love your enemy. Love your enemy. This is the concept that the church is built on. Love your enemy. And the most quoted verse 
by, by the church fathers. Interesting. My Lord, Daniel says, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. So Daniel, rather than wishing destruction on his enemy, rather, rather than wishing death and pain and humiliation, he, he's, he's going to actually pray for him. And we see him extend a hand of mediation and, and a desire to see Nebuchadnezzar repent because Daniel has actually chosen to love his enemy. Daniel actually loves Nebuchadnezzar. If Daniel can love Nebuchadnezzar, you can love your boss. If Daniel can love Nebuchadnezzar, you can love your in-laws. If Daniel can love Nebuchadnezzar, you can love your children. This is, I hate using this example because it's so overused. This is the Hitler of his day. You get that, right? He's standing in front of that man and he has chosen to love him and serve him, and pray for him. If Daniel can do that, we too can love our enemies. We don't overcome power with power. We overcome power with love. This is how it works in the kingdom of God. Jesus did not overcome power with power. You know the old hymn, he never said a mumbling word. He was led to the slaughter like a lamb, and he never said a mumbling word about himself. He did not overcome power with power. He overcame power with sacrifice. This is how we know what love is. That Jesus Christ, come on Bible scholars, this is how we know what love is. That Jesus Christ laid down his life. So we also ought to lay down our lives for one another. Verse 20, the tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king. You have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reached to the heavens and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but, but leave the stump and its roots in the earth bound by a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree from the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. So Nebuchadnezzar, when you know that God is the one who rules, your kingdom will be restored. Therefore, listen to this prayer that Daniel has on behalf of his enemy. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So Daniel Daniel's saying there's still a chance, Nebuchadnezzar, for your heart to change. Break it off. Break off your sins. Change your way. Change your heart. Verse 28, and this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. So a year later, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace, thinking to himself of his greatness and his wonder. 
Only I could have done this. Only I could have built this. He's walking around. And the king answered. Who's he answering? He's talking to himself. You know that voice in your head that asks you dumb questions? Who else could have done this, O king? And he answered, the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, and you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird claws. There's, there's a medical disorder called, I, Josh, correct me if I'm saying this wrong, like lycanthropy? <laughs> See? See? You guys can listen to me. Ly- lycanthropy. I meant to have my notebook and I forgot it on my desk this morning. Sorry. Lycanthropy is a medical disorder where, where a person thinks that they're an animal. And this is a real thing. And, and people are still, from time to time, um, diagnosed with this, and it's usually accompanied with other uh, disorders, schizophrenia and, and, and the like. And so uh, what, what biblical scholars believe happened to Nebuchadnezzar is that he had a mental breakdown, um, he suffered from lycanthropy, and, and he literally thought he was an ox. And so he began to live as an ox. And what's interesting is that um, there are some ancient historians that allude to a sickness that Nebuchadnezzar had towards the end of his reign. They don't name it, but they allude to a time when Nebuchadnezzar was sick and one of his sons ruled the kingdom during that time. This is interesting. So he thinks he's an ox. This, this, this man, man with more power than anyone else on earth, he thinks he's an ox and he's eating grass at the field and he's driven from his kingdom. Immediately it happened. Verse 34, at the end of the day, so seven periods of time, we're not sure exactly, but probably seven years. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. So just imagine a man who has let himself go in every single way, in every way for a long period of time, and eaten grass off the ground for, for his diet. That's what Nebuchadnezzar would have looked like and smelled like. Can't get much lower. He lifts his eyes to heaven in that state. And his reason returns to him for a moment. And in that moment of clarity, and he's looking at his brokenness and the mess of his life and everything he's lost, that moment of clarity that the Spirit of God grants him, he blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing 
And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, why have you done? Nebuchadnezzar was one of those guys who like, when he asked a question, he didn't ask it twice. Right? When he gave a command, he didn't give it twice. Because you jumped when he said jump. You sat when he said sit. You fetched when he said fetch. And listen to what he's saying about God. You cannot say to him, why have you done that, God? At the same time, my reason returned to me. So when Nebuchadnezzar has that moment of clarity, his reason returns to him and he worships the Most High God and he humbles himself before God, lifting God up. His reason returns for good. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me out. And I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. What an amazing story. I am so thankful that God included this in the scriptures, the story of this mightiest of earthly leaders who is humbled before God. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot invade and the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And you see all of this in Nebuchadnezzar. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, that's Jesus, my holy hill, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. A couple things to remember from this passage. If Daniel and the boys and the many other Jewish refugees that were there at the time can walk faithfully with God in the midst of that situation, we are without excuse and we can walk faithfully with God in whatever our situation is today. We have the Spirit of God, of the Son of God, living within us. And Jesus said, I'm going away that the Father might send the Spirit to you, which is better than if I stayed with you, because when the Spirit comes, he'll indwell you, and the Spirit will teach you all righteousness, and he'll teach you everything that I say, what it means. So because we have the Spirit of God, we can look at the Scriptures and read the New Testament and understand the words of Christ. And the Spirit convicts of two things, Jesus says. Convicts of righteousness and convicts of sin. You know what that is? That's God's judgment. When he convicts you, he separates the righteousness from the sin. The other thing is, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up. Think about Daniel, Rakshak, and Benny humbling themselves over and over again before God, and God being the one who lifted them up. We're going to transition now, and we're going to take communion together. This is our communion Sunday. So let the word of God, however the spirit of God worked today, whether it was in songs or, or in the sermon uh, just now, whatever it was that, that is speaking to you, 
listen to it and, and commune with the Lord. We know that, that the scriptures teach that if we have an offense towards our brother or sister, uh, that we are not to take the bread and the cup because the bread and the cup represents God releasing his offense towards us and forgiving us. So if God has forgiven you, do you believe that God has forgiven you? Do you believe that God has forgiven you of everything? Every single sin you've struggled with and wrestled with, every way you've hurt your brother or sister? If God has forgiven you, the word of God says, as you've been forgiven, so you must forgive. So that means if Jesus only forgave you for half your sins, then only forgive your brother for half his sins against you. Jesus did not forgive half your sins. He redeemed the whole person. Therefore, as you've been forgiven completely and fully, so you are to completely forgive. That means no matter what, no matter what, that person or that situation is, you have the power of God, Christ living within you, to release that offense, to put it on the cross where it belongs, and to say, I forgive my brother, I forgive my sister, I forgive myself in the same way, God, that you have forgiven me. So when we take the bread and the cup this morning, it is such a profound opportunity for us to hold that representation of Christ's body and the representation of his blood. And when we eat and when we drink, to drink life, drink life into ourselves as we remember Jesus Christ. Because on that night that he gave himself up for us, forgiving us of everything, he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat this, do it in remembrance of me. And that same night, he took the cup and he passed it around to his disciples, to us, to you and I. And he said, this is my blood shed for you, poured out for you, for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink this, drink it in remembrance of me. And so today, as we take the bread and cup, let the forgiveness of God wash over you and let his power fill you because he has filled you with his love, his forgiveness, and his spirit. God, we thank you for your sacrifice of your son. We thank you for this most, this most sacred and special of ordinances where we take the bread and cup and we remember our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the example of Daniel. We thank you for the example of your son. We want to be like Jesus. We want to be just like him. We want to walk like him. We want to live like him. We want to talk like him. We want to think like him. We want to speak like him. We want to feel like him. We want to look at you like him and listen to you like him. We want to be like Jesus. That is our hope. That is our hope for life, is that we would walk with you like your son did. And we can. We can. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We can because your spirit lives within us and you've forgiven us. We thank you, God. As we take the bread and cup this morning, we worship you and we remember you, God. So as the worship team plays, they're going to play two songs. As you're ready, I would invite you to come down the middle aisles, and you can take on either side. Um, deacons will be serving the bread and cup. Just come at your own pace. You can, you can take the elements and eat them and drink them up, up front, or you can take them back to your seat, however you want to do this. Um, you have some time. Make it as personal and, and uh, as reflective as, as you desire. There's no rush. And so deacons, uh, those deacons who are serving, you can come up and get the elements ready. You'll come up the center aisles and then go out the side. Um, communion is for believers who have been baptized. And so if you've confessed your faith to the Lord through the waters of baptism, we invite you, whether or not you're a member of this church, to come and participate with us. If you have not been baptized, we would ask that you wait to take communion until you have uh, testified to your relationship with the Lord through the waters of baptism. 
and we do have gluten-free wafers. I know that is a request. So we do have gluten-free wafers. If you need them, just especially request them. So let's stand uh, and worship, and then um, as you're ready, you can come down the center aisles and take the communion.